Samuel now, chapter 11, as was read for us earlier. I had to institute one of the sacred rules of preaching. Once your sermon hits 6,000 written words, you divide it in half. And so instead of taking this long story in two parts, it's actually going to be three parts. Today we're going to simply deal with the adultery. Next week we'll deal with the murder. And the third week we'll deal with the restoration. So, I, I mean, any, any story that results in Psalm 51 is going to require us to dig a little deeper, I think. <laughs> we owe it to Psalm 51. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in chapter 11, looking at verses 1 through 14. Before we begin, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the prophets, Lord, who recorded the history of Israel and set these things down, Lord, for a lesson to us that we might be instructed in... Um, what holiness and piety requires of us. I pray, God, that as we consider the sins of both David and Bathsheba and their court, that you would teach us to stand in fear of you, that we would tremble, Lord, that we would consider our own ways, Lord, and not stand merely in judgment of them, but let the word of God stand in judgment of us as it is meant to. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now... So Saturday nights, we tend to talk about what the sermon's going to be about. The kids like to ask. Gracie likes to ask with the title and the text. And so I told her about this one, and she said, oh, I'm not going to draw any pictures of that. <laughs> and uh, that might be a, as much levity as we can squeeze out of this story <laughs> from the mouth of babes. Chapters 11 and 12, chapters 11 and 12, my oh my, they tell a single connected story and multiple parts, and now these chapters will determine the course of events for the remainder of 2 Samuel. This is what 2 Samuel ultimately is all about, the destruction that David brings to his own household because he, his love for the Lord has grown cold and his love for sin has grown hot. Now, the story lends itself to a great deal of confusion. Uh, I want to I dispel certain myths about the story right out of the gate. Um, it, you know, there's parts of the story that we think that, that we have firmly set in our minds that are actually not true. Oh, there's, there's other examples of this, you know, how many, how many animals were there on the ark, how many of each animal, and we've all seen the posters, there was two. Well, if you go and you look at the text, actually there was two of every unclean animal and seven of every clean animal, but they don't show that in the, in the cat, po- you know, the, the sweet posters and the child care when you're young. So, so there's certain images we have in our minds associated with stories that are actually inaccurate, and there's several in, in the story of David and Bathsheba. One of them is that um, Bathsheba was bathing on a roof. I think we all agree, right? If we know, we know the story, she's fully in full view of everyone, fully nude, and and not, none of those things are actually in the text. It never says she's on a roof. Uh, very rarely did people bathe in the complete nudity, especially when they're doing a, a sacred rite. Abraham, or, um, Aaron was baptized as a priest. He was not naked in front of all of Israel, being baptized into the priesthood. And Bathsheba is not just taking a bath. It's a ritualistic affair that she's involved in. There's a right that she's involved in, and she's not fully nude, and she is not on a roof. David's on a roof, it says, but that's all that it says. So why is it that we assume that she's in full view of everyone and fully nude and on a roof? Now, culturally, people explain, well, back in the day, they used to take baths on the roofs. I'm sure some people did that. 
I, I looked into that archaeological information. I thought this is plausible that some people did this. But all of that is reading into the text. And I think reading into this text is very dangerous. We have to let the text speak for itself. Now, there are other cultural things here that we have to deal with. One of them is that David, in this story, rapes Bathsheba. Now, the text does not support such a conclusion, but one of the things here is actually cultural and is very difficult. Modern definitions legally of rape uh, are, do not consider consent to have anything to do with it. It doesn't matter if the parties are consenting. Like, statutory rape is considered rape, even if both parties want to do it. Because in modern um, legal definitions, any man who uses his authority in order to sleep with someone is, by, by, by the very nature of it, they, they call that, they define that rape legally. And I, I've dealt with this. Uh, I, I, my degree was in law, pre-law. I was a court clerk. And, and it's very difficult to define rape in modern terms because they include all kinds of things that, that don't consider consent. Now, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, consent really is the thing that de- defines whether it's rape or not. And there's nothing in this text that in any way, shape, or form suggests that they were not both willing parties. They were both willing parties. Now, Bathsheba is not a victim in this story, but neither is she a vixen. This is another way that people try to deal with it. (laughs) To understand, uh, my understanding on this particular subject, that she is not a victim and not a vixen, my friend Dr. Decker, I just saw him a few uh, like a month ago or so, he's a pastor down in Eugene, and his PhD was, he wrote his PhD dissertation on the women in Samuel. And, and I was like, oh, okay. So he handed over his 600-page document that I've been reading, and let me tell you, I did not know very much about the women in Samuel. <laughs> and his work has been very helpful to me. It's been very helpful. Once the opportunity presented itself, she gladly took it. She did not, con- but she was not seducing him. She did not go on this war path because she was unhappy with her husband and wanted to you know, sleep her way to the top. There is no proof of that. Okay? It's more subtle than that. What happens to David and Bathsheba it, it has to do more with the everyday variety of things that we all struggle with. Okay? People want to make it about these big plots and plans that they have. But any married couple can fall into the sins of David and Bathsheba very easily if, you, right, if you're disobedient in the little things. And, and what, that's the most important part of the story. Both David and Bathsheba, the love, their love for the Lord and the love for their community and the love for their spouses and the love for, the, for doing what's right has grown cold, and it leads them on a very subtle series of actions that lead to this major sin, this major fall. It takes two to tango, and it takes two to commit adultery, okay? They're equally to blame, and it wasn't something that just happened out of the, uh, that fell out of the sky upon them, these circumstances. Now, another thing that goes on in a story like this is that modern Christians sometimes want it to be more than mere adultery. We want it to be rape. We want it to be seduction, because we're not comfortable with the fact (laughs) that Christ has raised the stakes, and we, all of us, are David's and Bathsheba's. Right? The, the sin's got to be more tawdry than merely adultery because when we look at this story and we think, oh, look at these people. Look at this filth. Look at these sickos. But then Jesus comes along and what does he tell us? Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
So there you go. You committed adultery in your heart, then you are David and you are Bathsheba, which means what? We are all of us David and Bathsheba. Now, 1 John 3.15 also says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, in our hearts, have you ever hated a brother, a Christian brother, whether they were in your church or not? Right? There's plenty. I, I could trot out plenty of celebrity pastors who we've all taken a liking to and to some extent hated. We hate brothers and sisters at times. And what that does is make us firmly puts us firmly in the camp of David. We, we argue that David and Bathsheba must be worse than you and I, certainly, because we don't want to deal with the fact of, of our own hearts. We don't want to deal with the fact of our own adulteries, our own weaknesses, our own sins. At heart, we are all of us Davids and Bathshebas. Now, let's think about this for a second. Okay? Let's just ponder for a moment what the Lord has done for David. The Lord has promised David eternal dynastic continuity. It was the new charter of humanity. They call it the law of man. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember the covenant that God gave with David? This is now, stands David at the stands, and this covenant stands at the heart of redemptive history. No one since Adam has ascended as high as David, the priest king. And, and his fall is all the worse for how high he has ascended for how high the Lord has taken him. Like Adam, David received great covenant privileges, and yet he sinned. After the new creation in David in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, there is a new fall, and that's what we're reading about today. Adam's sin was a spiritual adultery. David's sin is literal adultery. Like Adam, David's sin involves tasting forbidden fruit, taking something that doesn't belong from him to him from another man's tree. There's another man's family tree, and he goes and he takes something off of it that he wants, and in that, he is like Adam. It's a second fall. Adam stood and watched Satan seduce his own wife. David's men go out to fight for Israel, while David remains in Jerusalem to go into their wives. That's what the story is. The complacency and abdication of both Adam and David is what leads to their fall. That's the thing that we have to understand. The abdication and the complacency is what leads to, to David to fall. Now, David's sin is also comparable to Saul's. David waited patiently to receive the kingdom from the Lord, but after being established as king, he began to seize things. Remember, Saul took all kinds of things that did not belong to him. And here we see David is beginning to take things that do not belong to him. First, a woman, and then the life of men. He's taking Bathsheba, and he's taking the life of those who stand in his way to cover up what he has done. David is not establishing a sinless house. He's, in fact, establishing the very sins that will destroy his house. His sons grow up to be just like dad, and that leads to civil war and destruction and death and and actual rape and all kinds of other sins. The higher a man is, the further he falls. Now, if if David had been higher than any man since Adam, what are we in the Lord Jesus Christ? In the Lord Jesus Christ, we have ascended further than either of them. And from this place where we stand, how far do we have to fall? That's the lesson. We've attained great things in the Lord Jesus Christ, and and we gamble with them, don't we? We gamble with them with our everyday decisions of of piety and holiness, obedience and discipline. Who could fall 
from even higher heights than David. You, me, we can. And that's why we need to consider the story and how David ended up falling and consider how to protect ourselves, how to keep the love that we have been given in the Holy Spirit of the Lord, how we keep that fire burning so that our, our, our love and lust for sin does not in itself burn so brightly that it burns us for eternity. Now, with all of that being said, let's look at what happens to David and Bathsheba. Let's see how they trap themselves in this sin. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, chapter 11 continues the account of the Ammonite wars described in chapters 8 and 10. The verb send is one of the key words of the chapter. It brings out the theme of messengers going here, there, and everywhere. Now, normally, messengers go out to conduct uh, war and negotiations and public business. But in this story, the messengers in verses 4, 6, 14, 19, 22, and 25 are being sent hither and yon in order to help conspiracies of sin. They're arranging adultery, they're arranging murder, they're taking messages back and forth, because what they're doing is it's a conspiracy of sin. You have people in the community, people in the court, not standing up to David like David had to Saul. You have people enabling and people just going along with it. Where is the faithful man in Israel who's going to say, hey, you know, I'm not carrying that message. I'm not going to do that. Hey, I'll go on the lamb like you, David, but I'm not going to facilitate this for you. That's why what we see is that at the, as the heart of the king goes, so go the people. And you see the entire household of David is participating in this. Instead of acting like a king and going to war, David contents himself with sending messengers here and there, carrying adulterous proposals and death sentences. While others spend themselves and risk their lives, David is killing time, acting like one of the kings of the nations. And this self-gratifying sloth will, in the end, lead him to killing actual men. There will always be blood. This is what we're going to talk about next week. There will be blood. Either for our sin's fulfillment or for our sin's propitiation. You can't have sin without blood. It's going to cost somebody their blood. It's Christ or chaos, as Doug Wilson says. Now, spring was the normal season for military campaigns in the ancient Near East. Rainy weather during the winter made it difficult for kings to carry on campaigns since the roads were impassable. The spring feast of Passover, though, is also in mind. They mention spring because they want us to think of the Passover. It was celebrated in the spring. If you're a Jew and you mention spring, you don't think of anything else. Passover is in the spring, and and this story involves a Passover, a substitutionary death of a son that will deliver David. But it's a corruption. That's what it is. The death of the child that results from this adultery dies so that David does not. That's profound. And it's, it's one of those examples of God using a negative example Right? The opposite of what's true and right and beautiful and good in order to teach us what happens when, our, when we sin. There will be blood. Someone is going to die, and it's either one another, we're going to slay one another in our sins, or Christ is going to die for those sins. David is not doing the Lord's work 
In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, it says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and, and the woman was very beautiful. He saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, it's early evening, and David is rising from bed. Let's talk about that for a second. Uh, I don't know about you, but I usually get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> Occasionally, I get out of bed in the afternoon, but it's usually on a, a Sunday afternoon after I've been here or uh, if I'm sick. David literally is at home taking a siesta, right? In the hot spring afternoon, he's sleeping on a couch on the roof. Ugh. Robert Alter, one commentator, notes the siesta on a hot spring day would begin not long after noon, and so this recumbent king has been in the bed an inordinate amount of time. Not only is he taking siesta while his men are out fighting, he's taking an extraordinarily long one. Clearly the office of, you know, the, the requirements of state are not too hard for David at this point. He's enjoying his rest and relaxation. Now, he rises and he begins to walk around. And this is an important detail. The word occurs two other times in the book of Samuel with David as the subject. In 1 Samuel twenty-three thirteen, David and his men went wherever they could go. It's the same word. They, they wandered around. They walked around. 1 Samuel 30, verse 31, refers to all the places where David and his men had gone, had wandered, had walked around. So both references show that the word used to indicate roaming. Now, why was David roaming around in, in 1 Samuel? Well, it's because he was being hunted. Why is he roaming around on a roof now? Well, because he's listless and bored, right? I mean, it's hard work sleeping all afternoon. <laughs> David is on the palace roof wandering around with apparently not much to do. And when that happens, men, what usually proceeds? Right? God said, go, go work. Be fruitful and multiply, take dominion, go and tell the nations about the Lord Jesus, baptize them, go, and there's an awful lot to go do. And when men are listless and bored, when they're just wandering around, empty-headed, with time to kill, that time usually kills them. And this is why we have to keep our hands very busy doing the things that God has called us to do, because when they, when they grow restless, they grow dangerous. Now, in this, David appears to be like the fool from Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7, verses 6 through 9. For, all, for at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Here's a young man, empty-headed, Full, uh, his mind's just wandering, it's just empty, it's just looking for something to occupy it, wandering around a part of the street that he knows he ought not to be on. And that's David. He's lacking sense, he's wandering around, he's tempting temptation, as I like to say, in the descending darkness. Darkness is falling around him, that's not an unimportant detail. And it helps set the scene. In the, if that's who he is and what he's doing, what kind of woman is he about to find? It's a little foreshadow. He's not seeking God trouble, the kind of God trouble that his men on the battlefield is seeking. He's leaving himself open to a very different kind of trouble. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? 
Now, like Michael, Bathsheba is defined by the men in her life. This is very important. She's known by the men in her life. She's known by her covenantal unity with the men who are both her husband, her father, her grandfather, right? There's a covenantal awareness of who she is and who she belongs to. Because this is very important biblically. Women ought ought to be protected by the men around them, and and they ought to be known by the men around them. This, This is part of their identity, and part of what she's going to do is put off this identity and take up an identity of a very different kind. Bathsheba is the granddaughter of David's counselor, Ahithophel. You're welcome, Laura. I really worked on that one. Ahithophel. Nailed it. I'm going to say it again because I'm so proud. Ahithophel. She's the daughter of Eliam, one of David's mighty men. Okay, so she's the, the wife of a mighty man, the daughter of a mighty man, and the granddaughter of a beloved counselor of David. Talk about, like, this is practically, as Peter Lightheart says, an incestual relationship. It's not that he doesn't know who this woman is, and it's not that he doesn't have decades of loyalty and love to the men in her life. He inquires of her name. Now, this part is interesting. Why? Why is it that he has to ask who she is? If he can see her and see that she's beautiful, why is it that he cannot automatically recognize her? Now, a lot of people assume it's because he doesn't know her, but I think it's because it, there is some obs- she's obscured in some way, Right? I mean, this, this is how it works. You can tell a woman is pretty good looking from pretty far away, even though you don't know her identity. I remember I was, uh, this is a distinct story that I love. I, I remember, and, and it doesn't put me in the best light, but hopefully in the end. I remember I was at the gorge, and I, this woman caught my eye out of the corner. I thought, oh man, I'm not, gonna, I'm not supposed to look, but I'm going to look. And I looked, and you know who it was? It was my wife. And I was like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Still turning heads, girl. Right? You, you can tell a woman is good-looking without really recognizing her face. And that, that seems to, it, it really throws some difficulty into the common version of the story. Why is it that he can't tell who she is? He clearly is going to know who she is. He's got to inquire, hey, who's the girl who's down there getting the bath right now? And they come back with the information, and he's told, oh, it's Bathsheba. Oh, yeah, okay, cool, I know her. Right? Once we understand Bathsheba's relationship with David... His adultery appears even more disgusting. He's the, it's the work of a dirty old man because she's a generation younger than he is. He's a leering voyeur. He's a sexual predator whose lust does not heed close personal ties, tribe, and friend, and trusted soldier. He clearly isn't thinking. How would he ever keep this secret? How would he ever keep this? From these, this many men that, he has, that owe him loyalty and, and who he owes loyalty. Doesn't David owe her even more careful treatment given who her father and grandfather and husband are. Now, David should honor and respect her for her own sake. I want to be very clear about that. It's not that we protect women because of the men in their lives. What it does is is it demonstrates that sexual sin is never in relational isolation. It never is. The woman that a man is lusting after is somebody's wife, somebody's daughter, somebody's mother. And, and this is something that we have to remember, that you owe loyalty to the men and those in that woman's life, as well as the woman herself. It's both and. It's, it's not a dichotomy. Now, men have certainly descended to animalistic levels when the ties of blood and love are so easily tossed aside. Oh, who is that? Oh, Bathsheba, I know her. Man, I know her dad and her, her husband and her grandfather, and I remember her fifth birthday. It was glorious. Call her up to me. And it just put, makes it even creepier. Ick. Ooh. Okay. 
2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 4 through 5. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, it's important to note that the Hebrew word translated, she came to him, is used here, not the Hebrew words for she was brought. Now, he did take her, right? It's, it's clear that he's a king that takes. But it's very important that it says she came to him. That is an extraordinarily important detail. There's a double entendre here, a very interesting one in Hebrew. Now, the verb indicates a physical change of location, right? She came. She went from one location to another location. But euphemistically, the combination of words in the Hebrew Bible denotes sexual intercourse for the first time, as in Genesis 39, 16 to 17. And that's, that's the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. She says, he came into me to make love to me. That, that's why he came in here. And after that, it's used euphemistically. Now, I want to go back for a second to 2 Samuel 3. Now, this is not the first time this author has used this phrase. And, and I want to think about that for a second because context matters. The whole book matters. Now, we go back. Remember Abishai? He was falsely accused of sleeping with Saul's concubine so that he could take the throne. Then he was accused of trying to politically seduce David. In describing this political seduction, Joab uses the same euphemism. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 24. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. There it is. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? Now, what he was saying is that why are you letting this man seduce you politically? Not sexually, but politically. That's how he's using the phrase. Now, when the verb has a masculine subject and into is followed by a feminine object, it designates the first act of sexual union. That's what the phrase comes to mean in Hebrew. Now, here it's reversed. And it's the only time that this ever happens. Bathsheba is the only woman to whom this euphemism is used, and its masculine precedent means that she is acting aggressively, not shying away from what he wants to do. Oh, you're going oh, to take me? All right, I'll come. That's what's happening. That's why it's important to understand that she's neither, she didn't orchestrate this, but once it comes, once it happens, once it's there, once it presents itself, she doesn't back away from it. She doesn't turn from it. Now, if we think of Bathsheba, now, what, what's the only other story that we really know of her? Well, it's in 1 Kings chapter 1 to 2. In that, she certainly demonstrates that she is a, is a bold woman, a woman who has her eye on the main chance. And in that, those two chapters, she's entered into a conspiracy to make sure that her son is king. She understands how to, how to grab an opportunity, essentially. She's an opportunistic woman. And that much is clear from the text about her, this story and, and the next story in 1 Kings. Now, given that there were messengers involved, it's obvious that the adultery is not a secret, which is important for two reasons. Now, Tamar, who we're going to talk about in a few chapters, um, she makes, Tamar makes a, 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 it records her objection to what her rapist wants to do. Now, there is no such protest from Bathsheba. There is no recorded protest. She has nothing to say, no, don't do this. No, why would we do this terrible thing? She just goes. Now, there's nothing in the text that indicates that she cried out or objected in any way, and this is where I was talking about legal definitions. Tamar cried, didn't cry out, but she protested loudly in a room where there were servants. 
Everyone in his house knew what he was going to do, and they helped him do it. And her, her protest went nowhere. And so she didn't cry out in that case, because why would you? When you're surrounded by all these men who are going to just let this happen to you, the point of crying out, there isn't one. Now, if you go to Deuteronomy 22, chapter 20, uh, verses 23 to 24, we learn something important about the definition of rape. Now, in that, it says a woman who does not cry out in the city when assaulted is presumed to be guilty of adultery because she does not raise an alarm. Right? When a woman doesn't protest at what's happening to her, it, the implication is that she is, is going along with it willingly. Now, there are perfectly legitimate reasons that a woman does not cry out, fear, intimidation, but nothing is stated here of either of these things. This is, this is, again, where people read into the story. There is nothing that demonstrates that Bathsheba did anything other than want this once it was presented to her. Now, there's two contrasts I want to make. Even when Uriah comes, he voices his objections to David. David tells him to do things, and he says, no, I'm not going to do that. So David is still, right? David doesn't say, oh, how dare you, and I'm going to throw a spear at you like Saul. He, he, he lets people argue with him, and he listens to what they have to say. So it's, David isn't so far gone that he's not reasonable to a good argument. And Uriah proves it. So, so that, that's why we can't read into the text things that aren't there. She doesn't make any argument why they shouldn't do it. She does not contradict him. Abigail, we remember, stood up to David when he, when he was leading 400 soldiers, I might add, and put him in his place with a solid argument. So David can be stood up to, men in power ought to be stood up to when they do this kind of thing. And what we see, I'm just trying to make it very clear, is Bathsheba didn't do that. She didn't. How did she get here? How did she get to this point where she's called up to the palace and just goes along with it? Willingly. Now here's where things get downright fascinating. And and the Hebrew language is so important to understand when we're trying to figure out what's going on in the story. It says that Bathsheba returned to her own house. Her house or her husband's house? See, the, the, one of the points they're making is that she's no longer going to her husband's house because she's now a liberated woman. She's now her own person. She's going down not to her husband's house, but to her house. She's made a decision for herself about who she's going to sleep with and what that's going to consist of, and she is now, in a sense, a liberated woman. Woman, what's also interesting is that Tamar has to be sent away. Even after the act occurs with Tamar, she says, no, don't, it's even worse that you're sending me away now. What are you doing? Now that you've done this, you've got to marry me. But Bathsheba's like, okay, now that I'm done, I'm going to go home. Make some hot pockets. Uh, I read, okay, talk about reading things into the text. Okay, she doesn't go home and make hot pockets. But it's very casual. All right, I'll go home. I'm done. Now, Bathsheba's bath, let's talk about that for a moment. It mentions in this verse that what, what had happened um, was a ritual that she was performing because she had uh, been having her that time of the month. She's going out, and she's, she has to be ritually purified. So this is connected to the phrase in verse 4. She was purifying herself from the uncleanness. Now, what this demonstrates is that it gives us the reason that she was taking a bath. She didn't take a bath as part of a plot to seduce David. She was taking a bath to fulfill a vow she has to Yahweh. The intent of her bath was ritual cleanliness, not seduction. But what's interesting here is it also connects her to the woman in Proverbs chapter 7, 
We read in verses 13 to 15. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. Today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and have found you. And what that shows is that woman, the harlot, plays right, the adulteress with God, performing rituals, before she is an adulteress with the man, an adulterer with the man. She, she goes, and she's willing to fulfill the letter of the law and then go and commit adultery. And Bathsheba is the same way. Well, you know, as long as I externally conform the law of God, I suppose it doesn't really matter what I do. And it's a lie. It, it, it's, it's a lie, start to finish. Her heart is far from God, though her actions might appear to be very close to him. Bathsheba cares about keeping the letter of the law, external right, appearances, but once she rises from the rights of her religion, she's ready to follow her flesh. Proverbs 7, 18 to 20. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. Indeed. He's gone. I'm all clean now. I went and did what I was supposed to do with the priests. So let's do our thing. Now, the last thing is that they mention the ritual cleaning, because they want to make it very clear who the father of the baby is. So she couldn't have been pregnant before she came to David's house, because she just went through the ritual. So if you want to argue that it's maybe not his baby, and maybe she's a harlot, and she's been running around, no, it's, it's David's baby. Now, in verse 5, Bathsheba is not named. And this carries on the idea that she's now been liberated from the covenantal ties in her life. She's just simply referred to as the woman the woman. She's not a person. Persons have names. Persons have identities. Those identities are covenantal, and she doesn't have one at this point. It just says the, the woman. Now, her name associates her with the men in her life, but she is now a liberated woman. She can go where she wants and with whom she wants. She has her own household. She is known by her sexual identity as a woman, not as her covenantal identity, the wife of, the daughter of, the granddaughter of. And this is what's fascinating now. This really concerns me about her. Because what does she do? She sends down a message to David and says, hey, uh, by the way, I'm pregnant. And then she goes away, and we kind of forget her about what, and then what's happening. She ceases to be a character. But what did she think was going to happen? What did she think was going to happen? I have a lot of questions about that. She gets this whole thing going with, with uh, David and, and the plot that occurs next. And, 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 and she doesn't get to wipe her hands clean of it simply because she didn't, wasn't directly involved. Right? She doesn't write a letter to her husband, say, come home immediately, I have something to tell you, and confess her sin, and say what happened, and let them deal with it. No, she sends a message to David. Hey, Dave, by the way, <laughs> I'm with child, so have fun with that, let me know. Let me know how that works out. Now, Bathsheba doesn't speak again after this until Second Kings, or the book of First Kings. This is the only thing she has to say through this whole story. I'm pregnant. How did you get here? How did she grow so callous? How did she grow so cold? How did she grow so manipulative? What happened? Right? Did she just wake up one day and be like, you know what I'm going to become? An adulterer. And then you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to just let the cards fall. Whatever happens, happens. Now what's David going to do? 
Right? This is David we're talking about. This isn't this when he sits down and writes Psalm 51? Oh, no. No. And this is going to take us now from this week into next week. Once you start sinning in this way and you don't repent, you're either covering your sins with repentance, with the blood of Jesus Christ, or you start to cover your sins. You're required to cover your sins with other sins. Right? In order to cover one small lie, you have to tell a bigger lie to cover it. And then to cover that, you have to tell an even bigger lie. And then the lies get bigger and bigger. And then the sins get bigger and bigger. Well, you know what? Lies aren't covering this, so we're going to start shedding blood. And maybe that will cover it. Well, blood does cover the sin, but it's Christ's blood in repentance. So David now, we're going to look at a larger section. This is, this is his grand plan. He doesn't want to take responsibility for this. He wants to transfer responsibility for what he's done to another man. The rightful man, I should say. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him. I'm sorry. And there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie in his couch in the servants of the, with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he tries to cover his sin, What? by getting the husband back here and sending the husband down to his own house. Well, that'll take care of it. Except he's expecting to, to have a man like himself. But, but Uriah is not a man like himself. And then he try, right? he's covering this with lies, and then he covers it with drunkenness. And drunkenness, we're like, you know what? We needed some drunkenness because then we'll all feel better about the sins we're going to commit. Right? If the guy gets drunk, then he won't care about what he's doing. And so he's, he's the king of Israel, the anointed of the Lord, is leading people into deeper and darker sins because he wants to cover his own. Now, Uriah is a Hittite. He's a convert, converted Gentile. He's not even a Jew. He's one of David's mighty men. He displays greater devotion to Yahweh than David in this story. It appears David was seized by only a momentary lust. He has, he's trying to cover up the paternity of the baby now. He has no intention of taking her as a wife. He has no intention of laying claim to the child. They're no one to him. He, he, he shows no desire here to, to marry Bathsheba and own this child as his own. Now, how callous and cold is that towards the child? David now concentrates his energies on a switch of paternity. He, he lays claim not to... Bathsheba or the child. Now, at this point, we start to see that there's an avoidance of her name. They're not saying her name anymore. She's just this woman. They're passing back and forth to one another. She's just become this object that they're trying to deal with. 
She's not a, uh, a person at this point. She's a piece of flesh. David cannot seem to bring himself to refer to her. When he wants Uriah to sleep with her, he tells her in verse 8, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, we had a, a pretty good laugh yesterday at this one. Apparently, wash your feet is yet another euphemism. Hebrew has a lot of euphemisms. Wash your feet, and, and, and what I like about this is they, they don't translate it to what it really implies. They just translate it directly. Now, why they say wash your feet, I don't even want to begin. Right? I have no interest in trying to determine what, why they say what they say. But I will say this. All the work, all the work I could do, this is like one of the crassest things said in all of Scripture. It's the, it, he's referring, he's telling Uriah to go home and to be with his wife in a way that is not the way gentlemen talk about their wives or one another's wives. It, it is locker room, crass, violent, disgusting, filthy talk coming out of his mouth. It's shocking. I was like, really? I didn't really understand. I figured he was going to wash his feet because he's coming back from a journey. Turns out, no. Turns out this is the thing that one sicko guy says to another sicko guy in reference to that guy's wife. And this is what David has become. And and it's obvious in verse 11 that Uriah understands what David is implying because he says, well, why would I go down there and sleep with my wife now? Well, why would he suddenly bring her into the top? Well, because David had. Because David is being gross. And that's so, I mean, it's just weird about the Bible. Like, how many times have you probably read this verse not realizing that you're saying something really horrible? <laughs> it's, it, it, it's awful what David says. Now, three times the point is made that Uriah does not go home. He will not go home. He will not go home. He's not going to do it. David had expected and hoped that Uriah was like himself, but instead he finds a man of integrity who is loyal not only to the king but to the king's men. Astonishingly, this Hittite mentions the covenant, symbol, the ark, the throne of Yahweh, as an influencing behavior over himself. He's like, how am I going to sleep in a house when the ark of the Lord is sleeping in a tent? Now, didn't David say something like that just back in chapters 6 and 7? So this Hittite has more loyalty to the throne of God, to God's king, to God's people, to God's army in the field of battle, because he will not do this terrible thing. Now, what's, what's obvious here is not so much David's physical location. Okay, people make a, lot, a big deal out of the fact that he's in Jerusalem and not out of the battlefield. But later we're going to find that he does, in, in fact, get old enough to where people say, listen, you're too important to go. Right? I mean, like, FDR did not go in World War II and fight Nazis. Right? Because he's, too, he's the man in charge. Right? Even Eisenhower stayed in England a lot of the time. So you don't, at times, send the king. So it's not necessarily bad that the king is in Jerusalem. The problem is his psychological and spiritual state. That's what's the problem. When Uriah came back to Jerusalem, he refused to go to his wife. We learn that other soldiers of David are also sleeping out. That's an important detail. Lots of men are sleeping in the courtyard because they refuse to to sleep in their own homes. And, And we remember from David back in an earlier episode, when men of Israel go to war, they make vows of purity. This is what David said in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So David admits, hey, when we go to war, we take vows and so even if David had been in Jerusalem and slept with his own wife, he would have been violating the, the, the vows that his army made. 
Furthermore, adultery is a capital crime, and Deuteronomy 17 makes it clear that the king answers to the law of God. So if it could be proven that David had committed adultery, he might have been tried and executed, truly. He may have lost his life for this. But the cost of Uriah's loyalty to Yahweh, to David, to the people of God, is his life. And in this story, we, f- we see this important detail. From Philippians 2.8, we can apply this to Uriah. It says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Uriah will not be dissuaded from obeying God and God's law. And he is a true son of Israel. He is a true son of Yahweh. He, unlike David, is faithful to the vows that he has made to the uttermost. Now, in the morning of the fourth day, David sends Uriah back to the front with his own death warrant in his hands. That's what we're going to talk about next week. But here's my question. Right? That was a lot of information. You can see why I chopped this sermon in half, believe it or not. What does this have to do with us? But I keep asking throughout this whole thing, how did they get here? How does David, who's man, a man with a heart after God, so after God, as he's been described throughout this whole story, how has he now grown so cold towards the Lord and so hot towards his own sin? Right? Bathsheba's from a good family. She was raised well. She was married off to a mighty man. There's nothing but good pedigree on her side. How did she end up here? And I think this is what we have to start asking about our own hearts and minds. Your marital problems, whatever they may or may not be, how, right, what, how do you deal with them? How do you deal with intimacy in your own household? How do you deal with, with, with your own spouse? What is going on that perhaps you need to check real fast because where it leads is this? Because this isn't just some story that happened long ago that has nothing to do with us. Right now, you're making decisions that, that either take you, right, that are faithful to the Lord and your spouse or unfaithful to the Lord and your spouse. And, and, and what is very difficult with this is that we often think that when it comes to sexual sins, well, that's a man problem. Men have sexual sin problems. Men are the ones who commit adultery. They're the ones who do it, right? I mean, they're, look, look around this culture. But there are all kinds of, of ways, right? Think of Jesus. Jesus came along, and he was like, you know what? I'm going to make this really easy on you guys. And I'm going to say, now, even what, what goes on in your own heart and mind? Uh, oh, oh. So when I'm sitting on my phone, when I'm reading, when I'm walking in the grocery store, when I'm out in the world, all of all, what I'm thinking about and how I'm thinking about the people I see and, and who I'm talking to and how I'm talking to them, my own spouse, all of that matters now. It's not just out running, running around, right, running up to the palace to sleep my way to the top. Because that's easy. We're like, oh, yeah, okay, that girl's, a, that girl's a whore. Fine. She's sleeping her way to the top. That's awful. Look at the world. Look at that. But what I want you to do is, if we just stop there, we don't get very far. David, or Bathsheba has rejected her covenantal identity and become a sexual object, and she's fine with that. It's not his house, it's my house. I'm no longer, so my surname doesn't matter. I, I am known as an object of desire. And, and, and modern feminism is seen in this story, in this regard, right? There's nothing new under the sun. But adultery is always more dynamic. Now, one way to slide into this sin is through what are called emotional affairs. One of the biggest threats of relationships is our emotional affairs because they're often framed as innocent relationships or idle distractions. 
Okay, your husband may not get you, but man, that blogger does. Right? He's always writing such interesting marital advice. I feel like he really gets me. Right? Your, your marriage bed may have grown cold, and so you know what works is romance novels. Right? And, and I know everyone kind of puts up their nose. But if you go to the Christian bookstore, if, if they even still exist in the area, and you go to like the novel section, it's like what, what I call... Um, uh, what, see, God didn't want me to say it. <laughs> Amish porn. That's what I call it. The Amish porn section. I worked at a Christian bookstore, and the Amish porn section is huge. And, it's, and, and it's, Christ, it's novels written for Christian women who have unhappy marriages. Okay? And, and, and the blogosphere is written for people who are not understood by their husbands. We, we love it when, when, when people, right? What, what, do, what does a woman need? She needs relationship. And in the absence of emotional intimacy, relational intimacy, she will find it. And, and, and you know, you don't have to go up to the palace. You don't even have to leave the homepage. And, and, and women can be doing this in their own homes. And men can be doing it too. Okay? I've learned a thing or two. And not, none of the categories apply one, to one or the other sex, right? If a man is not feeling like he's being respected, he will go and he will find respect. And, and that may be why he's playing soccer all the time. That may be why he's always not at home, but he's with the boys doing something in which he's conquering, in which people recognize the fact that he is a man. When a spouse feels underappreciated, when they aren't receiving the attention that they're supposed to, when the intimacy in the marriage has grown cold, this is a long, slow process in which, in, in the end, where it ends, is David and Bathsheba. That's where you end up. It's not how it starts. Now, mental adultery is common to both men and women as well. It's intentional. It's deliberate. It's a desire to gratify lust. And so you're not physically engaging in it. You're engaging in it in your own mind. It's inappropriate thoughts, meditating on a person other than your partner in any way, shape, or form, fantasizing about them when you're laying with your partner, visiting certain locations knowing that a person you're sexually attracted to or is attracted to you will be there. Right? That guy always gives me a wink. That lady always compliments my tie. And so I'm going to go there because that's a good place to have lunch, right? It's just the salads are so tasty. Or maybe the waiter is pretty hot and notices that you got your hair done. This is the kind of stuff that seals our affections little by little. And we grow cold towards one another. And what happens is then our, our, the, the lust in us grows hot. Watching pornography is an obvious example of this, but so is idly surfing, right? Oh, I'm just going to go and check out that, that person from high school I hadn't seen. Ooh, wow, that's a bigger family than I thought they were going to have. And you, oh, let's look at their vacation from last year. Phones and computers are breeding grounds for emotional infidelity, and I, and I don't think we recognize what's really going on. Why is your spouse needing so much time on that device? What is it they're trying to fill what is it they're trying to attain? What is it they're trying to, to get that they're not getting from you? The most striking example of adultery in the Bible is the story of David and Bathsheba. For all of its brevity, it's rich, full of images, pictures of a springtime setting, an afternoon stroll on the roof, the viewing of a beautiful woman bathing, the secret visit, and the subsequent message that the woman is pregnant. It's a very short, pithy story with a lot of detail. And this is often how we think of this topic. But again, I want to go back to what the Lord Jesus said. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, or man, has already committed adultery with them in their heart. 
Jesus' teaching develops the concern clearly expressed in the Old Testament over one's internal disposition. Right? Is it easy for you to go and, and, and like Bathsheba and perform the rituals, but then when you go away, you go your own way, you do your own thing? And so over here, it looks externally, like it's happy-go-lucky family, everything's in order, everything's great, everybody loves Jesus. And over here, you're harboring the worst kinds of disgusting sins. Proverbs 6.25, do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. Now, are we a people whose eyes are easily captivated? And I'm talking men and women, right? Like, I don't know how many awful movies I'll watch because they're beautiful. You know, I was recently telling my son, I was like, why do you watch an awful movie? And I was like, well, it's just, it's so well made. And then I thought, you know what? You know how that sounds? Do you know what I'm opening myself up to as long as it's well made? And, I, and, and this is just low-level, low-lying fruit. And, and we are not people on guard like we ought to be. Now, the, the conclusion here is that all of this, at all of it, is another kind of adultery. And that's spiritual adultery to the Lord. Jeremiah 3.20, this is what he has to say about the people of God. But like a woman faithless to her lover, even so have you been faithless to me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. And, and Augustine was right. Until we are satisfied in the Lord God, we will not be satisfied with anything. And, and if you're unhappy with your spouse, it's because you're unhappy with the Lord. If, you're gro- if you've grown cold towards your spouse, it, it either has caused you to be or is a result of your growing cold with the Lord God. It's the primary thing that you have to put right. Revelation 19.2, that great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. And he's referring to the church. All of these external corruptions, all these external impurities and impiety come out of the fact that our hearts have grown cold towards God. And that's what my sermon was about last week, right? We have received the fearless fire from on high. We should all be lit up for the Lord, and we ought to pile on the the means of grace to get this fire burning hotter and hotter and hotter so all the impurities in our hearts and minds are burned up and what we do is it, it, we, we, we quench it. And we put things on. No, no, this is, this is burning too hot. It's burning too hot. And what we do is, is as that gets colder and colder and colder, the fire that we have inside of us for, for the lust of our flesh grow hotter and hotter and hotter. Do not stand in judgment of David and Bathsheba. Go away and read this story and let this story stand in judgment of you. Is this where you're headed? It could be, by the things that you're deciding to do or not do every day. The the love in your marriage, the quality of your marriage, the things that are going on in your marriage, right? It's a long obedience or disobedience in the same direction. And, and, And you may be single, but, but this is what, right? This is what we do in my own house. We pray for our son's wives, even though we don't know who they are, because they're out there somewhere if they're going to have them. So even if you're single, all of this still applies. Do you, are, are you going to be hot and cold in, in, in your relationship, right? Hot or cold in your relationship to other men and women? Is it pure and right and good and true and beautiful? It, it starts with how is your relationship with the Lord God? That's where it begins and ends. If, if, you, if you keep that fire burning, all the impurities and lusts and disgusting things will get eaten up by it. And, and we can see that last week, that wasn't just some rah, 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 rally, rally, rally sermon. It's the sermon that keeps us pure and clean and true and good. 
It's the Spirit of God burning, and, that's, and it's us feeding that fire is what's going to keep us on fire for the Lord and, and, and blazing hot with love and compassion and grace for one another. It may be time to prune a great deal. It may be time to go home and sit down with your spouse and repent and confess and forgive, doing both equally quickly, and and to pile that junk on the fire by the means of grace, welcoming the Lord back into areas where he may have been kicked out so that you might, through a long obedience in the right direction, find yourself with him in the end. Right? Because if you feed the other fire... That leads to a fire, right? The fire, fire of the lust, those desires. You feed that, and you're going to end up in a place that never gets cool. It, it, the story of David and Bathsheba is what happens in the end. Okay, it's, 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 the, it's what happens after a long unfaithfulness in the same direction. And unless you get out ahead of it, this is what will happen to you. That is, the, that is the staunch warning of today's message. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for the story of David and Bathsheba. We thank you, Lord, that it was recorded for, uh, for our edification. Lord, I pray that the fear of the Lord would go before us and behind us and within us. Lord, that we may hate sin and temptation and, and the work of the de- devil and death. And I pray, God, that we would heap the means of grace onto the fearless fire that you've laid on each of our hearts, and that we would burn bright, being holy and pious people, upright and loving and gracious towards one another. And I pray for the marriages here, that, that you would strengthen them, that you would protect them, that you would protect the men and women in this church, Lord God, that we would be upright and holy like your, like your son, in whose name we pray, and amen.